Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to be back with you after a couple of weeks' hiatus. Um, I want to thank those of you that have been uh, praying for uh, my voice and for my uh, daughter Emily's uh, battle with cancer. appreciate that very much. Uh, my voice is not entirely back. <clears throat> I've been waiting uh, for a number of weeks to see a specialist, and I'm going to go at the end of the week, but I'm I'm probably at 50%, which is a lot better than I was uh, uh, just recently. So uh, uh, grateful to our Lord for that and glad to be back with you. Got a lot to talk about today. I'm going to talk about the seven sacraments, which ties into our um, readings from this uh, last Sunday. Also going to talk about the mystery of prayer. Uh, lots of kind of a Bible study on prayer. But to, to begin, as always, we're going to look at Sunday's uh, readings that began the week, and I'm looking at the readings from the extraordinary form this week, the, uh, starting with the epistle for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, which is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 10. And now, brethren, I want to remind you of the gospel I proclaimed to you, which you received and in which you stand firm. Through it, you are also being saved, provided that you are holding fast to what I proclaimed to you. If not, then you have believed in vain. For I handed on to you as of primary importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and later to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me as one born abnormally, for I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. However, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and the grace he has bestowed upon me has not proved to be fruitless. Indeed, I have worked harder than any of them, although that should not be credited to me, but to the grace of God within me. Now, according to Greek thought, the soul is imprisoned in the body. They saw that the, the, the body is a prison and that the soul alone is destined for immortality. And so death actually sets the soul free from this, this prison of the body. And as, as heirs of that mentality, the Corinthians, to whom uh, Paul's writing, they were unable to understand why there should be a resurrection of the body. They wondered, does, does Christianity perhaps desire that the soul should be uh, again become a prisoner? And so Paul is correcting this notion, which of course is not in accord with the Christian faith, because the biblical tradition holds that the human being is one, created by God in body and soul. So death does not constitute the deliverance of the soul, but the unraveling of this unity. It is a violent state produced by sin. Right? It's one of the consequences of the original sin. So in atoning for sin, Christ has conquered death. It's the whole person that's saved and the whole person that's involved in the resurrection. But Paul takes account of the objection that the Greeks can bring up that uh, the resurrection is not a simple return to the former earthly condition. The risen body does not limit the aspirations of the spirit because it will be a, a spiritual body, a new creation in the risen Christ. 
Remember, Jesus passed through the closed door of the upper room, and he vanished from their side on the road to Emmaus, presumably transported with the speed of thought like the angels. Such is the, the mystery of the glorified body in which we will all share. Now, uh, traditionally, this um, epistle teaches us that St. Paul was not puffed up with pride because of the revelations he'd received from God. But on the contrary, he felt himself unworthy of them. He attributed it all to God's grace that, that he was what he was. So even so, that the truly humble person thinks little of himself and is willing to be thought of as little by others and gives all the glory to God. That's, that's the lesson for us. And that kind of humility is really difficult for our fallen nature. But really, you know, why should we think highly of ourselves when we are, after all, sinners in, in need of salvation, perhaps even greater sinners than St. Paul was? And even if we're not guilty of any great sins, in fact, even if we've done much good, it's pure presumption, or as the old Dewey Reams Bible would say, robbery, to claim for ourselves what belongs to grace. So therefore, it's entirely appropriate for us to learn to be humble and to count ourselves always as unprofitable servants, as Jesus himself counsels us to do in, in Luke 17.10. So true humility is not convincing yourself that you're worthless, but recognizing God's work in you. And final note on this, the very first verse, uh, St. Paul says, And now, brethren, I want to remind you of the gospel I proclaimed to you, which you received and in which you stand firm. Through it, you are also being saved, provided that you are holding fast to what I proclaimed to you. If not, then you have believed in vain. So in other words, there's no expiration date on the truth. The gospel always remains the same. And don't let anyone, and I mean anyone, tell you different. Because it is only by holding on to what we have received that we are saved. That is, to the teachings contained contained in tradition, both oral and written, as St. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. All right, and now the Holy Gospel for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, according to Mark, is taken from Mark 7, 31 through 37. Returning from the region of Tyre, Jesus traveled by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Thereupon, people brought to him a deaf man who had a speech impediment and dragged him to lay, and begged him rather <laughs> to lay his hand on him. He took him aside away from the crowd and put his fingers into the man's ears, and spitting touched his tongue. <clears throat> then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At once the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he spoke properly. Then he ordered them not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them not to do so, the more widely they proclaimed it. Their astonishment was beyond measure. He has done all things well, they said. He even makes the deaf able to hear and the mute able to speak. So this miracle of the deaf mute is only found in Mark's gospel. And it places Jesus in the region of the Decapolis, which the population of which was mostly pagan. The deaf-mute, therefore, was likely also a pagan. And as the interpreter or secretary of St. Peter in Rome, Mark's gospel was written with Gentile converts in mind. 
And Mark is anxious to show that, you know, provided they would believe, the Gentiles had a share in the kingdom also, even if the, the Israelites, as the chosen people, had the first claim. And we see earlier in this same chapter, uh, in verses 27 and 28, there's another episode found only in Mark, wherein another pagan, the Syrophoenician woman, begs Jesus to heal her daughter. But Jesus says that he's come first and foremost for the children of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, he said. So likening her and her daughter to uh, you know, pets that are interrupting the family meal. And the woman didn't try to argue. She just replied, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the scraps from the children. So using Jesus's own choice of imagery, she pointed out that she's willing to be considered as an interruption as long as she could receive God's healing for her daughter, which he provided because of her faith. You know, And here, Mark is illustrating the irony that many Jews would lose God's spiritual healing because they rejected Jesus as Messiah, while many Gentiles, whom the Jews also rejected, would, would find salvation because they accepted Jesus. And yet many Christians are like the deaf and dumb man. We're, we're deaf to the voice of God and we're mute in prayer and the praise of God. We're silent in the defense of religion or the good name of our neighbor. We're dumb when it comes to confessing our sins. And you notice that Jesus took the deaf and mute man aside because he did not seek the praise of men, first of all. And secondly, that he didn't want to prematurely provoke the hatred of his enemies. You know, it's like at the wedding of Cana when he says to Mary, what's this between me and thee? My time hasn't come. It's not yet come. Anyway, the various gestures that Jesus performs on the deaf mute had the purpose of strengthening his faith. Uh, gazing up to heaven, he showed the deaf and dumb man that God alone could help him. And, and the sigh that he breathed was to make him realize what a miserable condition he was in and to encourage him to sigh to heaven for relief. The touching and anointing of his ears and his tongue was intended to show him plainly that he owed his cure to Jesus. Now, Mark recounted this episode in detail precisely to foreshadow the future, or I should say the coming, Christian sacraments. And so in her services and in administering the holy sacraments, the church follows the example of Christ and makes use of outward and visible signs. In order to raise our hearts and minds to the supernatural, make it plain to us, the invisible effects of the Holy Sacrament, right? The, the invisible effects of those visible signs. And then finally, uh, Jesus asked the people not to talk about this healing because he didn't want to be seen simply as a miracle worker and have people miss the real message, but also that we might learn not to seek the praise of men for our good deeds and instead make known the works of God to his glory. For God continues to work wonders right before our eyes every day in order that we may praise his compassion and his almighty power. You know, some may say that the age of miracles is over because the miracles that helped the initial proclamation of the gospel are, are no longer necessary. But miracles still happen, not the least of which is the ongoing miracle of faith at a church that's still standing after having weathered everything the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw at her for 2,000 years. And that's no nonsense. Hey, when we come back, I'm going to be talking about the sacraments, the mystery of prayer. Lots more coming up right after this on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
right, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Richie tells me that uh, you're not hearing me through my mic, uh, but uh, it sounds like it's coming through the computer. And sure enough, my settings say that it's unplugged, and yet it is not unplugged. So uh, here's hoping that we, uh, you guys can hear me okay. My voice is coming back. It seems unfair that the mic's not working properly, but <laughs> it's just the way it goes sometimes. All right. Um, we talked in the first uh, segment of the gospel for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, where uh, Jesus took a deaf and dumb man aside and put his fingers into the man's ears and spitting touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at once the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he spoke properly. Now, accordingly, the sermon program from the old Roman catechism names as the doctrinal subject for this, sub, uh, this Sunday the seven sacraments, their matter, their form, and why they're seven. And since the gospel begins with this verse, people brought to him a deaf man who had a speech impediment and begged him to lay his hand on him. The moral subject is prayer. And those are the things that we're going to be talking about today. And um, first, I want to talk about the sacraments. I'm going to be referring to a, one of many catechisms uh, in my library here, this one called My Catholic Faith. It's from the, uh, from the 40s, actually. Uh, but it, uh, it lays out a nice outline of the things I'd like to speak about, which are uh, the sacraments. And we begin with the, uh, the question, you know, what is a sacrament? And the old uh, Baltimore Catechism gives us the answer that a sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So that means that there's three things absolutely necessary for something to be considered a sacrament. It had to have been instituted by Christ. It had to be an outward sign. And it has to have that power to give grace. In other words, it, it accomplishes what it signifies. Now, uh, despite what uh, some of our separate, separated brethren might think, the church did not institute the sacraments. Only Christ could institute the sacraments because only God could endow uh, these signs with the actual power to give grace. So from the teaching of the church, from uh, the sacred tradition, from Holy Scripture, we know that Christ instituted seven and only seven sacraments. You know, even the, the, the Eastern churches who went into schism back in the early Middle Ages, you know, back in the, the 11th century, had the great schism between East and West, they all have and recognize the same seven sacraments that the church does. Church has no power to institute sacraments. All right, um, an outward sign is something that's perceivable by the senses. So uh, the sign or the ceremony is called the matter of the sacrament and the words are called the form. So uh, example, baptism, we see the water, right? That's, that's the matter and the water is poured on the forehead, and then the words are pronounced as the water is poured. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these are sensible signs that are perceived by the senses of sight and hearing. And then the sacraments, though, actually signify. Right? They actually give the graces that they symbolize. And so um, thus that, that, that outward washing of baptism is, in fact, a genuine uh, spiritual cleansing, uh, a, a cleansing of the soul from sin. And so uh, the sacraments always give the grace that they signify. And that's provided 
that the one receiving the sacrifice, the sacrament rather, doesn't put up any obstacle. All right, it's principally through the sacraments that we obtain the grace of God. The merits won by Christ on the cross are communicated to the world through the sacraments by the Catholic Church. And, and these are our channels of grace to feed our souls. Uh, and it is only by worthily receiving the sacraments that we can know those definite graces. Now, how many sacraments are there? There are seven. Baptism, Confirmation, Holy Eucharist, Penance, Extreme Unction, Holy Orders, and Matrimony. There are seven sacraments, only seven, no more and no less, for the simple reason that our Lord instituted seven. The seven sacraments are a gift from the Son of God, a gift for which he gave his very life. Now, a sacrament uh, cannot be administered against someone's will. And if it is, it will have no sacramental effect. That's why the church has never supported forced conversions or forced baptisms. That's why the church doesn't condone shotgun weddings, because the sacrament is not conferred. You know, it requires the dispositions for receiving it, the desire to receive it. Now, for the infant um, receiving baptism or for an unconscious person in need of the last rites uh, and doesn't have the use of, of reason, that intention is supplied by the church. Uh, or their their godparents, okay, and we take it, we take that consent for granted, all right, um, uh, through the church or, or at the word of their sponsors. And now, um, ceremonies, and this is an important thing to talk about, I think, in our day and age, you know, because um, of what happened after the Second Vatican Council, you know, the, the sacraments of the church, the way they're celebrated, was changed. But the, the simple fact is that ceremonies are not necessary for the validity of the sacraments, but they are used in their administration in order to make the occasions more solemn and meaningful and to increase uh, devotion of the recipients. And so those, the change in ceremony, whether you know it's a good thing or a bad thing, whatever your opinion may be on that, it doesn't affect the uh, validity of the sacraments. The new mass is a valid mass. Baptism is a valid baptism, you know, confession, the, this, this sacrament of, of holy orders, all of it, matrimony. The sacraments are uh, valid because the same matter and form is present uh, as was always present. All right, and the sacraments, you know, and because the sacraments receive their power to give grace from God through the merits of Jesus Christ. I mentioned they're like channels in my old Baltimore Catechism, St. Joseph Baltimore Catechism that we used with our kids. Um, in the chapter on the sacraments, it was an illustration. You can see if you can picture this. It's uh, the Vatican, right, up on a hill. Uh, but in the foreground, it's Christ on the cross. And then from the cross flow these seven streams that are labeled, you know, a baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, holy orders, and matrimony. Extreme unction or anointing of the sick, as it's also called. Um, and, you know, they're actually illustrated as streams of water, and then there are sheep there drinking from them to symbolize us receiving the grace of the sacraments. So streams of grace flowing from the pierced heart of Jesus crucified to nourish and strengthen our souls, right? 
many of us have to suffer uh, and make sacrifices in order to keep a roof over our family's head, in order to, to keep food on the tables, to, to keep our loved ones healthy. And that should put us in mind of Christ, who died on the cross, who, who suffered through his passion, not to buy food or to pay the rent, but to, to buy grace for our souls. And each sacrament possesses the power from God to make the soul the recipient, uh, the soul of the recipient, holy and pleasing. Okay, the sacraments make us holy and pleasing to God, and that's uh, through the operation of what we call sanctifying grace. Sanctifying because it makes us holy. It's divine help for the fulfillment of our duties imposed uh, by the particular sacrament. So the sacramental grace of matrimony, for example, gives the uh, the right to the assistance of God in fulfilling the duties of married life. All right? uh, the, uh, the, the sacrament of, of penance gives that uh, a return of sanctifying grace when we've lost it, and so on. If they are received with a prosperous disposition, sacraments always give grace because they derive their efficacy from Christ. Consequently, they give grace of themselves so long as we have the proper disposition to receive it. The sacraments, therefore, are a sure means of grace. They are a certain means of salvation. It is by them that we are united to Christ our Lord, and it is by them that he gives us his hand to hold on to, so to speak, that we can walk through life and through all of its trials without weakness and without fear. And the, the, the sacraments are, are grouped into two um, major groups, the, the sacraments of the living and the sacraments of the dead. Right? The sacraments of the living being those who, uh, uh, that can only be received by a person who is in a state of grace. All right? That's part of that proper disposition of receiving the sacraments of the living. That would be Holy Eucharist, Extreme Unction, or Anointing of the Sick, Holy Orders, and Matrimony. And that's why... Um, the anointing of the sick in the, the full ceremony includes auricular confession, right? So that you can be in a state of grace in order to receive uh, the anointing. It is a sacrilege to receive uh, these sacraments in a state of mortal sin. So Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, call your office. There isn't any controversy here. There isn't, there's no, <laughs> there's nothing to misunderstand, all right? Those who receive the sacraments of the living in mortal sin uh, receive the sacrament, but not the grace. And worse, they commit a, a further sin. They, they commit a sacrilege. Um, the sacramental grace that they should receive is suspended until they recover that state of sanctifying grace. And of course, when worthily received, the sacraments of the living increase the life of grace in the recipient. And you know, the sacraments of the dead are baptism and penance because the chief purpose is to restore uh, life, right, to, to a soul that's dead in sin. It's to, re it's to restore the life of grace for the recipient. Uh, initial, the grace of, of justification at baptism, and then for those who have committed mortal sins after baptism, it's a return to sanctifying grace in a confession in the sacrament of penance. But it should be pointed out that while that is a, a sacrament of the dead, so to speak, because you're dead in sin, if you go to confession, 
in a state of sanctifying grace. If you go to confession simply to confess your venial sins, to confess your faults, you get an increase of sanctifying grace. You become holier, and, and I don't know which of us doesn't need that. All right. Some of the sacraments, of course, can be received only once. Uh, that is baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. And that is because these sacraments, they say, imprint an indelible mark on the soul. Uh, it's a special character that consists in this special dedication to Christ. It's indelible. It can't be removed. It can't be effaced by anything and even mortal sin. You know, a baptized Catholic is a baptized Catholic, whether he commits mortal sins or not. And then Holy Eucharist, penance and extreme unction and matrimony leave no indelible mark and may be received more than once. But it should be remembered that anointing of the sick shouldn't be received more than once for the same illness. And holy matrimony, of course, can only be uh, received a second time after the death of one of the spouses. Okay, when we come back, talk about prayer and more. Here on Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. Um, wow, my, uh, now my mic's not working on this end either. So I guess I can take it away from my face because <laughs> I just don't need it. Well, um, I'm sorry about the, uh, about the audio situation. I was trying to troubleshoot during the break. I guess that's why I didn't notice the, the music had come to an end because I'm not hearing it in my headphones. I guess that would be the answer. Anyway, we're on our third segment and plugging along as best we can. Uh, talking about the mystery of prayer. You know, what is prayer? And the old Baltimore Catechism answer is raising the heart and mind to God, and that's a good definition. Uh, Bishop Sheen said that prayer is a dialogue. Uh, like Eli told Samuel, if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God speaks to us in many ways, through people and events in our life and through his holy word. St. Augustine said uh, in... Uh, Speaking of that, 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 we, that we speak to God when we pray, and he answers when we read the Holy Scriptures. So bottom line, prayer is speaking with God. David wrote in Psalm 4, verse 4, Remember that the Lord wonderfully favors those who are faithful, and the Lord listens when I call out to him. And the faithful are devoted to God. So David knew that God would hear him when he called and would answer him. And we, too, can be confident that God listens to our prayers and answers when we call on him. And sometimes we think God's not going to hear us because of our sins, uh, because we fall short of his high standards for holiness. But we've been made God's adopted children through baptism. That's where we, we receive the sanctifying graces through uh, the good, uh, worthy reception of the sacraments like we just talked about. And like the good father that he is, God will listen to his adopted children. And if you feel like your prayers are just bouncing back to you, you know, off of the ceiling, just remember that as a Catholic Christian, you've been set apart by God and that he loves you. He hears and he answers your prayers, although his answers may not always be what you expect. You know, when we're praying for some 
specific grace, we should remember to look at our problems in the light of God's power rather than looking at God in the shadow of our problems. Now, some people will ask, and if you're a parent, you've heard this question, you know, if my prayers don't get answered because they're not God's will, but do get answered if they are, then what's the point of praying at all? But this misses an important point, namely that prayer is also an opportunity to bring our will in line with God's plan for us. Remember Jesus' own prayer in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. In Genesis 18, the Lord revealed to Abraham his plan to destroy Sodom because of the, uh, you know, because of the city's wickedness, particularly the sin which bears its name. Abraham said to him, is it true that you will destroy the just along with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really destroy it? Will you not spare it for the sake of the 50 righteous people that you find there? This is in Genesis 18, 22 and 24. And God says he would spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous people. And then Abraham asks, well, what about 40 or 30 or 20 or 10? And God says, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. Now, did Abraham change God's mind? Of course not. On the contrary, it's God that changed Abraham's mind. Because Abraham knew that God is just and that he punishes sin. You know, but he tried to bend that justice you know, in the name of God's mercy. See, Abraham, you know, he's lived in the ancient world, and like his contemporaries, he was convinced that members of one and the same group have a joint responsibility as well as the same destiny. But he thinks that the presence of 10 righteous persons should be enough to save an entire city. Now, later on, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel would claim that a single righteous person is enough. And Abraham apparently didn't feel able to push his request any further. And perhaps there really were no truly righteous people in the city. But Abraham left his conversation with God, convinced that God was both kind and fair that he was just and merciful, and he is. Our prayers don't change God's mind, but they may change ours, just as Abraham's prayer changed his. See, prayer helps us to better understand the mind of God, and it also provides us an opportunity to demonstrate our trust in him. Like we say in the act of faith, uh, oh my God, I, I trust in thee because thou art kind, merciful, and faithful to thy promises. So why did God let Abraham question his justice and intercede for a wicked city? Abraham knew that God must punish sin, but he also knew from experience that God is merciful to sinners. God knew whether or not there were 10 righteous people in the city, but in his mercy, he allowed Abraham to intercede. And in his mercy, he saved Lot, Abraham's nephew. He helped him to get out of Sodom before it was destroyed. God takes no pleasure in, in destroying the wicked and in, in punishing the evildoer. But he must punish sin because he's faithful, because he is, as Scott Hahn says, a father who keeps his promises. God is both just and merciful, and we should be thankful that his mercy extends to us. Uh, next question, why should we pray? Turning to the book of Genesis, Genesis again, uh, Genesis 25, 21 tells us that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife since she was barren. The Lord heard him and thus his wife became pregnant and with twins, as it turns out. 
Now, as Isaac pleaded with God for children, so the Bible encourages us to ask and even plead for our most personal and important and important requests. Now, God wants to grant us many graces, but he wants us to ask him for them. And why? It's because he respects the awesome gift of our free will. He wants us to exercise that will. He wants us to choose. That is the, the exquisite freedom that we are granted in God. Deuteronomy 30, 19 says, I call upon the heavens and the earth to witness today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Mary said, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done unto me according to thy word. She had to choose. Our Lord himself in his sacred humanity cried out to the Father in the garden, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. See, even though God wants us to pray for graces, graces that he desires to grant us, even then, as Isaac learned, God may decide to withhold uh, the, the fulfillment of this prayer, the answer, for a time. And sometimes God answers our prayers, but not in the way we'd like, because he has a better plan. Because what we ask for perhaps isn't for our ultimate good. God lets us suffer sometimes. And it's well to remember that suffering's good. It's good for the sinner and for the just. For the sinner, it's an opportunity to repent and for the just an opportunity of greater merit. So God might defer his answer in order to oh, deepen our insight into what we really need or broaden our appreciation for his answers or to allow us to mature so that when he grants us his gifts, we can use them more wisely. See, understanding prayer is a dialogue where we speak to God, open our heart to him, and then listen and learn from his response to our petitions that helps us to recognize the reality of our total dependence upon him. And on a related note, you know, sincere prayer, dialogue with God is far better than complaining to each other all the time. You know, whether it's in person or on Facebook or whatever. Uh, I just recently got through recording the entire Bible. And I can tell you that one recurring theme is the people of God grumbling or murmuring, as it says, when things get tough. You think of the chosen people in the wilderness. In Exodus 17, 2, it says, The people suffered from thirst because there was no water. So they murmured against Moses and said, Why did you make us leave Egypt to die of thirst along with our children and our animals? You know, not for the last time the people complained about their problems instead of turning to God in prayer. Now, some of our problems can be solved by thoughtfulness, by rearranging our priorities through our own actions. Some can be solved through discussion and good counsel. But some problems can only be solved by prayer. And so we should always make prayer our first response and not our last resort. We should make a determined effort to pray precisely when we feel like complaining. And no one needs to hear this message more than I do. Because complaining, not only does it not help, but on the contrary, Complaining actually raises our level of stress, whereas prayer 
as the tendency to quiet our emotions, but prayer helps us to gather our thoughts and uh, to prepare us to listen and recognize God's answer. So prayer then, and prayer is a dialogue, it's a key to our relationship with God and, and to restoring that relationship when it's lost. Remember the story of Samson, right, in, in Judges 16. It says, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to their god Dagon because they said, our God has delivered us from the hands of Samson. Uh, and so it says in verse 25, while they were in high spirits, they cried out, call out Samson so that he can entertain us. And they brought him out and made sport of him. And then in verse 28, Samson calls out to the Lord and said, O Lord, please remember me. I beg you, please strengthen me this one more time so that I might be able to take vengeance upon the Philistines. And, and Samson repented. And God graciously granted uh, his petition. And so he actually slew more Philistines through his death than he did during a lifetime of warfare. <laughs> so God answered his prayer and destroyed the pagan temple and the idolaters. And the point is that in spite of Samson's past, God still loved him. He was still willing to hear Samson's prayer of confession and repentance and use him as the instrument of his will one final time. All right, more on prayer when we return. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, right after this. All right, good to be back for the final segment today. I hope I'm back. <laughs> Having microphone trouble today, but uh, we were talking about Samson turning back to God at the end of his life. And I think one of the questions I have is, what took him so long? And I think the answer is that one of the effects of sin in our life is to keep us from praying. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so far gone. I, I messed up so bad, so messed up. I just don't feel like praying. But remember, prayer is not conditional on perfect moral behavior. You know, if you feel guilty about your sins, okay, that's natural. And, and if you really are guilty of something, then, you know, feeling guilt is a good thing. But it's downright diabolical to let feelings of guilt over your sins keep you from your only means of restoration. No matter how long you've been away from God, he is ready to hear from you and to restore you to a right relationship. So it starts with prayer make a sincere act of contrition, and then go to confession. And somebody's listening that needs to hear this. It doesn't matter if it's been 40 years. It doesn't matter what you've done. Every situation can be salvaged if you are willing to turn back to God. Consider where Samson was because of his sins, blinded and in chains, made the sport of his enemies. If God could still work in Samson's situation, which was admittedly extreme, and he can certainly make something worthwhile out of yours. And it brings us back to why should we pray and how we should pray. See, the Catechism says we should pray with sincerity and devotion, that our prayers should consist of adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration, that's praise and worship. 
contrition, sorrow for our sins, uh, thanksgiving, uh, expressing gratitude for God's many graces. And then lastly, supplication, which is prayers of petition where we ask for our various needs. These are the four great ends of prayer, and they can be remembered by the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Contrition, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And the scripture tells us that we should pray with an attitude of deep respect for God. This is what is meant by fear of the Lord. That's the great reverence that we should have for the Almighty. Uh, in Ezra chapter 8, the prophet instructed the people to fast and pray and humble themselves before God so that he would grant them a safe journey and, and protect them as they traveled to Jerusalem. And before making any of the physical preparations necessary for the journey, Ezra made spiritual preparations. Their prayers and fastings prepared them spiritually and reminded them of their dependence on God for protection. That reminded them of their faith that God was in control, their affirmation that they were not strong enough to make the trip without him. Like Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. See, what a great example when you take time to put God first, whatever you're undertaking, you can be sure that you are preparing well for whatever lies ahead. Ezra, he was a prophet. He's perfectly aware of God's promises to protect the people, but he did not take them for granted. And he also knew that God's blessings are appropriated through prayer. So Ezra and the people humbled themselves by fasting and by praying and their prayers were answered. And, and somebody might ask, what has fasting got to do with prayer? Well, fasting humbles us because going without food is a powerful reminder of our complete dependence on God. And furthermore, it's a sacrifice. You know, the number one reason people give for not praying as much as they should is, I don't have the time. Well, fasting will give you some more time to pray and and meditate on your relationship with God. If you can sacrifice your food, you can certainly sacrifice some time. Now, I fear that, that all too often I myself pray superficially uh, or mechanically. I mean, my biggest problem is that my mind wanders. You know, for example, I'm praying the rosary. I'm trying to meditate on the mysteries and suddenly I'm thinking about, you know, what we need from the grocery store. Or, you know, my, when I'm praying the Psalms in the the liturgy of the hours, you know, and I catch myself that, I, that I, I realize I'm just, I'm reading, I'm not praying. See, the point is that serious prayer, prayer that puts us in touch with God's will and can actually transform us, requires concentration. See, without serious prayer, we reduce God to, you know, some kind of divine Santa Claus or, or you know, like a, a drive through pharmacy that dispenses painkillers for whatever ails us. See, one of the fruits of serious prayer is that it prepares us for when we're thrust into unforeseen situations or when we're faced with unexpected op uh, opportunities or when we're faced with setbacks, when it seems like God isn't answering your prayers. If you, if you think that God is just a, 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 some kind of supernatural vending machine, you know, what's going to happen to your faith when the candy bar doesn't come out? When we are thrust into unforeseen circumstances, when we're faced with unexpected opportunities, that precisely is when we need to be ready to pray with confidence 
in the grace of God. And, and for a biblical example uh, would be Nehemiah. You know, during the exile, he was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And one day the king saw that he was depressed and he asked him, you know, why the long face? That's my paraphrase, <laughs> but words to that effect. And despite the fact that he was afraid, Nehemiah said to the king, may your majesty live forever. How can I possibly fail to be depressed when the city of my, where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you wish to request of me? Having first prayed to the God of heaven, I said to the king, if your majesty approves and your servant has found favor, I beg you to send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. See, with a little, he didn't have much time to think, but he had this opportunity. What do you wish to request of me, says the king? So Nehemiah, what does he do? He immediately prays. Having first prayed to the God of heaven, then I said to the king. See, it's because he had a habit of serious prayer. Because for him, prayer was uh, his first response. And so we read eight different times in the book of Nehemiah where he prayed spontaneously. He prayed at any time, even when he was talking to the king. Because Nehemiah knew what you and I should know that God is always in charge, that he's always present, that he hears and answers every prayer in accord with his divine will. So Nehemiah could, could confidently pray spontaneously because he'd an established an intimate relationship with God during his frequent times of serious prayer. Okay, so the takeaway is this. If you want to reach God with your emergency prayers, you need to take time to cultivate a relationship with God through times of regular serious prayer. That's Holy Mass. That's the Liturgy of the Hours. That's the Morning Offering, the Daily Rosary, the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, etc. We must make a daily habit of sincere and humble prayer. You know, in the story of the publican and the Pharisee, we learn that some people, especially religious leaders in Jesus' day, wanted to be seen as holy, and public prayer was a perfect way to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus saw right through their selfish righteousness. And he taught that the essence of prayer is not your public style, but personal communication with God. The Pharisee's long-winded extemporaneous prayer extolling his many virtues did not justify him before God. But the humble, sincere, and dare I say repetitious prayer of the tax collector, Lord be merciful to me a sinner, was heard. Public prayer and worship of God is necessary, of course. The Holy Mass, the Liturgy of the Hours, they're, they're the highest of prayers. But to pray only where others will notice you indicates that your real audience isn't God. And so we should remember to, to pray for others. That's why intercessory prayer is such an important part of Catholic liturgy. You know, and as Catholics, we're used to praying for others, even those we don't know. You know, for example, at every Mass, we pray for the Pope, we pray for the Bishop, we pray for, for missionaries, you know, that we've never met, for all who hold the Catholic and Apostolic faith. And again, there's a, there's a biblical precedent for this, because St. Paul often asked for prayers and, and offered prayers for others. You know, he never met the Colossians, but he prayed for them, especially uh, because they were dealing with a particularly pernicious heresy that was a kind of a mixed bag of heresies with 
several different elements, some of which actually contradicted each other, which, you know, if I may say so, is not unlike the situation in the church today. These are confusing times. And Paul's letter to the Colossians provides a biblical example of how to pray for our fellow believers in the midst of doctrinal and moral confusion. We can pray for our fellow, we can always pray for our fellow Catholics to understand God's will, uh, to gain spiritual wisdom. We can pray that they would please and honor God and that they will bear good fruit, uh, that they would grow in the knowledge of God, that they'll be filled with God's strength. We can pray that they would be granted endurance uh, uh, and, and patience and, and uh, they remain full of the joy of Christ and remember to give thanks always. These are the prayers that you can offer for any fellow Christian, even if you disagree with them, even if you don't know their personal circumstances, because we all have the same basic needs. You know, uh, and what a good example we would set for our separated brethren and the world if we all prayed this way. How much better to pray like this than to, to uh, scold or disparage or, or bicker over spiritual matters. Now, <laughs> There's a lot more to say, of course. Uh, prayer is a topic that we will never exhaust. But uh, for now, let me say this. Uh, considering all that we've talked about today, it emerges that whatever else it is, prayer is an awesome privilege. St. Paul says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace when we are in need of help. Prayer is our approach to God, and we are to come with confidence. You know, some Christians uh, approach God with a servile fear, afraid to ask him to meet their needs. Others pray superficially. But you and I, friend, let us approach the Holy Trinity with profound humility and reverence, because God is our King. But let us also come with assurance let us pray boldly because he's not far from any of us. He is our king, yes, but he is also our father, brother, friend, and counselor. And his kingdom is within you. And that's no nonsense. All right. I wanted to say thank you so very much, as usual, for being with us and, uh, and invite you to come back next week. Hopefully I'll have my issues with my microphone all taken care of. Uh, right now, I can't hear my own voice because uh, the music is in my headphones and nothing else. So I will bid you a fond farewell and uh, thank you for your prayers, your sacrifices for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and, and most especially to say, may God richly bless you and your family.